In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Last week, uh, we studied Joshua, chapters 3 through 5, in our study of the book of Joshua. Um, does someone want to recap briefly what it is that we discussed last time? What is it that happened with Joshua and the people last time? They crossed the Jordan River. Okay, good. And there was uh, some important events that happened when they crossed the river. Who is, who is the first person that they met, that Joshua met when they crossed the river? He met somebody. The, 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 what was he referred to? Yeah, the commander of the army of the Lord. Good, okay. And we said about him that he wasn't, he wasn't an angel, but he was a pre-incarnate Christ who was coming to encourage Joshua and the people, essentially saying that he is going to be fighting with them and leading the army, okay? So what he's saying is, so, so this first kind of encounter that they are going to have with the Canaanites are the city of Jericho. And in this, and which we will read uh, today, the, the, this encounter and this quote-unquote battle, if you want to call it battle with the people of Jericho and, the, and the going around Jericho, is essentially them going around the, the city many times and then the walls of the city falling, okay? So there was no, like, attack, like, in terms of, like, human attack or there was no weapons or anything like that. It was just this. So you see that, like, when this commander of the army of the Lord he is coming to speak with Joshua. What he is saying essentially is, I am the one leading the people in battle. And the, the greatest kind of um, illustration of that was this first battle, okay? Where essentially the human beings, they, they, they did what God told them to do, but what they did had really nothing to do with warfare, okay? It was just obedience of what God had asked them to do. Now, this wasn't going to be the case in all of the subsequent battles. There were really going to be human warfare and everything going on. But um, God wanted the people to realize that even though the human beings are fighting, but God is there fighting with them. And the victory is coming not simply because the humans are fighting, but the victory is coming because God is the one fighting with them. And this also will be illustrated today when in a loss that uh, the Israelites have, and we can touch on this um, again. Another important thing that we discussed last week was the setting up of the memorial stones that Joshua told the people to bring from the Jordan River, 12 stones, one representing each of the tribes, and to make like a, a, like a monument with these stones so that anyone who sees these stones will remember the, how God allowed the Israelites to pass through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Um, and so other than that, they are just getting ready and preparing um, to uh, conquer the city uh, of Jericho. So now we are discussing Joshua chapter 6, which is the destruction of the city of Jericho. So it says, Now Jericho was sh securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. So if you remember when we had discussed uh, Rahab, when the spies went and they met with Rahab, Rahab told the spies that all of the people were frightened because they knew that the Israelites were coming, okay? And this was not because they were afraid of the Israelites themselves as a people, but because they are afraid of the God of Israel. 
that they knew that this same God is the one who... Oh, it's not, uh, it's, it's not uh, displaying here. You know how to fix it? Um, so, so this is this uh, when when they met with Rahab. Rahab told them that everyone was afraid because they knew the God of Israel is the one who allowed the Israelites to cross over the Red Sea in the past, and so they had this um, reputation. Okay. And the Lord said to Joshua, "See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city." All you men of, of war, you shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. So he's giving them this scene that they are going to participate in, where all of the people are going to march around the city, okay? And they are going to do this one time uh, every, every day for six days. Okay, uh, and there will be seven priests that shall have seven trumpets and they will blow the trumpets as they are going around the city with the ark. But on the seventh day, they will go around the city seven times and the priests shall also be blowing the trumpets. And so it is through this that the people will conquer and actually we see that the walls of Jer Jericho will fall. Okay, it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So we've mentioned this several times in the past speaking about this specific story and how about this. This is a story that really required faith from the people in order for them to follow this, in order for them to believe and trust that this, what God is telling them to do is actually going to result in their victory, right? Whereas many people in the same scenario would have felt like, okay, this is a very bad idea. There's no reason why we should go there. We'll be vulnerable. Nothing is going to come of this. We are going to lose and so on or reject it going to the city altogether, which is the scenario that happened 40 years prior when there were the 12 spies that Moses sent into Israel and um, 10 of them came back saying, no, we can't enter this land, even though God is saying that we can enter, but we cannot enter because the people are frightening and they're gigantic and there's no way we, we need to just go somewhere else. There's no way we can enter. Right. So they lack the faith to believe that God could allow them to enter into the land, whereas now all of the people, which is the next generation, all of the people are kind of accepting this. And we don't hear about anyone complaining or arguing against this, but they are willing to do what God said. Okay, So unless the people had great faith, this plan uh, really, uh, from a logical perspective, doesn't make any sense. Okay, Because how is it that the marching and the trumpets would make the wall to fall? But again, the people accepted this. Okay, These people, again, were used to trusting God in their life for so long, having wandered in the desert. This was the only life that they knew. And so it is, uh, we see them accepting this uh, without a lot of questioning, okay? How is this relatable to us? God is always telling us very simple things that we are supposed to do that are mystical, right? There are mystical things, 
that God tells us to do. And he says, if you do these simple, mystical things, then you will have success and joy in your life. Okay, like a, a perfect example of this is prayer. It's a simple thing. It's not a complicated thing. It's not, it's not something that requires a lot of talents or skills. It doesn't require any kind of you know, certification to do it. Everyone can do it, and you can do it at any time. Okay, um, But it's mystical because what are we doing in prayer? Well, in prayer, we are not directly solving a problem. We are not directly uh, doing something in the world. Okay, The pr prayer is a communication with God so that God can work. Right? It's not we working except the work of prayer itself. It's giving God the opportunity to work, to work in us, to work in the world, to work in other people, to work in our life in some way, right? It has no direct effect, just uh, di directly, but except through God. This is exactly the situation here with the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho, God is telling them to do something very simple, march around the city. You don't have to be warriors. You don't have to have fancy weapons. You don't have to be skilled at war. Okay? Uh, but do it faithfully as I told you to do. It's a mystical thing. Okay? It's not logical. But it works nonetheless because God is the one who makes it to work. Okay? A lot of times when people are critical of religion, critical of Christianity, and they say that something doesn't make sense, something is illogical, or that believing in God is delusional, okay? According to the logic of the world, because the logic of the world is limited to this world, to the material world, to the understanding that we have in this world. And by its very definition, the logic of this world does not account for anything outside of this world. It doesn't account for something that could be beyond this logic, right? So when we approach a problem and we say, I'm going to pray about it, it's illogical. It's not about the human logic. It's not about the world system. It's about appealing to something that is beyond the world system, which is what makes it mystical. And in faith, we believe that that activity is going to have a positive effect, right? And that's the same for the sacraments. It's same for anything that God is asking us to believe, to have faith. Believe that you are forgiven. Believe that the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Believe that there is a paradise and a kingdom of heaven. You know, believe all those things, okay, mystical things. And that these mystical things, in them there is salvation, there is life, there is joy, all of these things. Remember again, the commander of the army of the Lord, okay, this is, this is his army and these are his tactics. This is his... Uh, way of operation is through the mystical not through the logical okay yes i think that's i agree with you but how i think one extreme that you mentioned is people who say everything has to be logical and i have to make sense of it and then i think the other extreme is superstition right where you do the small things and we believe that that has some sort of great power when it doesn't. So how do we keep ourselves from falling on to that extreme? So that's a great question. So what is the foundation of faith that we have? The foundation of faith is not based on what I would like to be true. You know, the foundation of my faith is not based on a human invention. 
or something that just makes me feel good about myself, something that 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 I I think about and I and I and I believe is true with no reference, right? Our faith is based on what God has revealed because God is truth. So he reveals the truth and we believe the truth that has been revealed to us. And as long as we are operating within that truth, then we believe that our faith is valid, that we the things we are practicing, the things we are believing are true, are real, super real, more real than the world, right? Because God existed before the world. Like he is the source of existence for all things. So when we say that we believe in God and his ways, when we say we believe in this going around the city of Jericho, this is, in a sense, more true than anything else because this is the way of God. Whatever words come out of his mouth are truth. So following his truth is reality, okay? It is a deeper reality than the reality that we imagine in this world or we see in this world because, again, this world will not last forever, okay? So superstition is what? Superstition is having belief in the mystical things that are not founded in the word of God, where there is no reference for those things. There are not things that God has revealed. They are things that come from human imagination, right? And because they are from human imagination, maybe we our, our emotional experience and connection to those things because we want them to be true. Maybe we believe that they're true. We want them to be true. We interpret actions. Thank you. We interpret actions and things to confirm their belief in our own mind but that those things are not really true okay so that's superstition and it's very easy for us in even in the church to fall into superstition because people want to see miracles you know we believe in miracles but not everything is a miracle right god operates through the world and through the and through reason and through the the physical laws of nature that he himself created so not everything is a miracle Sometimes we interpret things to be miracles because we want them to be. Because we believe that if something is a miracle, then that means that God is somehow intervening in the world in this supernatural way, and that gives us a sense of comfort. Okay, But we should have that comfort even without the miracles. Because God is intervening, and God is present, and God is with us, and God is leading us. We don't need the miracles to constantly remind ourselves of his presence. So as far as now, the people marching around the city, okay? Marching around the city in a circle represents like the eternal life, just like how we make the Orban round because it represents God who is eternal with no beginning and no end. So it is a circle, has no beginning and no end. Marching around the city, again, because everything that's happening here is mystical. Marching around the city in a circle represents eternity, okay? And Jericho represents the world, represents wickedness, represents sin. So it is through this eternal life and through this spiritual power that we received from God, we are able to conquer and destroy, metaphorically speaking, the world. Right? We are overcoming the world. We are, we are defeating the world through, our, um, through the Spirit of God operating through us. That is like the spiritual understanding of what is this representing okay and marching around the city once per day for six days 
This represents the continuous work of life. Just like, you know, we, we speak about the work week, we have six days of work, and the seventh day is the Sabbath, right, that God has said on the seventh day is a, is a day to the Lord, a day of the spiritual rest and the spiritual work. So for six weeks, we are doing, like, the, the, the effort, the hard work, okay? And this is what they are doing. For six days, they're going around the city uh, once a day, and they are blowing the trumpets. But on the seventh day, okay, they go around seven times, Okay, and this represents the spiritual work in the Lord. And you notice that the work that is done on the seventh day is more work than it is done on all the other days, right? Meaning what? That the, the spiritual effort that we should be putting in our life should not be like minuscule or, or, or insignificant. And the rest of the work that we put, you know, in our secular lives and our careers and so on is like oh yeah i work 10 to 12 hours a day but i don't have time to pray but i don't have time to go to church but i don't have time to do any spiritual work but i have tons of time to do all these other things okay that i that i want to do bishop caesarius he says the walls of jericho referring to this world fell when the priests blew the horns so all those of the pride the city of this world, together with its towers, namely greed, envy, looseness, etc., that is to say, every evil lust will be destroyed and abolished through the continuous preaching of the priests. This is why priests should never keep silent in the church. So he's saying, these priests that are going around on the seventh day, seven times, blowing seven trumpets, this represents like the preaching of the word of God, right, which is done on the spiritual day of rest which is the seventh day and it is through this word of god that is preached that the world crumbles okay the system of the world the the wickedness of the world which is represented by the city of jericho crumbles right at this then joshua the son of nun called the priests and said to them Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. So essentially he's going to implement what is it that he was just told that he needs to do. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. So that was the first day. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So second day the same thing. And they did this for six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they arose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. 
On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. You know, it's also interesting that the people were contented to follow exactly what the Lord said, which is to go around the city one time for six days. You know, someone might have come and said, okay, well, if one time, you know, is effective, let's just go two times or three times or ten times. You know, we're spending the whole day doing nothing. We're just sitting around doing nothing. We're, we're obviously, they were able to go around seven times. There were seven times on the last day. It's not that the city was so big that they couldn't go around. But they just went once and they stopped. You know, it reminds me of uh, when we discussed Moses and how when God told him to speak to the rock so that water would come out of it, right? Speaking to it. But Moses, thinking in his mind that it would be more effective to hit the rock, so he hit the rock. And this actually was disobedience, and God punished him for it, okay? So, so again, when we are trusting in the work of God, human intervention is not needed. Like, there are some things that we are required to do. There are some things that we must do. But not to believe that our work is what is accomplishing the goal. Because if it is God who is going to bring down the walls of the city, what is it he is really s wanting to see? He's wanting to see the obedience of the people. right? He wants, he wants them to follow what he says exactly. It is not by marching twice. Same, same problem with the Israelites later on when they would go to war and they would bring the Ark of the Covenant with them to war. The Ark of the Covenant was not supposed to be transported the way they were transporting it. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was supposed to be used for worship. It's not just something to carry around with you to go to war. But again, in the minds of the Israelites, well, if the Ark of the Covenant is a holy thing and God's presence is in it, so we'll bring it with us and so we will have victory. And it's trying to take a principle that God has set, and to use that principle in the wrong way and at the wrong time according to our own human understanding. Because if we truly have faith, then simply doing what God has asked is sufficient. God has said to do this. He didn't say to do beyond this. He said simply to do this. And when we do this, we believe that that is sufficient because God is the one who is working. He doesn't, he doesn't need our assistance in the mystical. He just needs our obedience. He just says, do this. For instance, when someone comes to be baptized, we baptize them three times in the water in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They get immersed uh, three times. But they're baptized only once. And some people say, well, what if I get baptized again? Someone said, well, a person who is living far away from, the, from God, um, away from the church, why not if they come back again after many, many years, we baptize them again as like a renewal? Well, because that's not what God said to do. He said baptism is one time. And again, if we have faith, then we believe that the power of that baptism cannot be overcome by any personal sin that we committed. The baptism still is good. The baptism is still present. Yes, we need repentance, and there are other sacraments for repentance. But we don't need baptism again. And actually, this is something that was a controversy in the early church. And it was decided that people who lapse, who, do, who left the church, do not have to be rebaptized again because baptism is only one time. It is placing the faith in what God has given, right? We don't need to go beyond it, right? Because be going beyond it, the power is not in the thing. 
The power is in the God who gives the power to the thing. God is the one who is working. It is not magic. You know, it is not, it's not magic. It's not, it's not something that operates apart from God. It is not that an object has power. It is God who imbues it with power. And he imbues it and gives it power according to his will and according to his way. So our faith is in him, not the object. Right? You know, there was a, a, a story uh, in the news, I believe it was last year, about a Catholic priest who, whenever he would baptize, so the, the formula that we say that the priest says when he baptizes, he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right? This is what the Catholic Church uses, and this is what we use as well. So this priest, uh, instead of saying, I baptize you, he said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's been using this for 25 years. He's been saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the question is, is it a valid baptism or not? So if it's a, if it's a, if it's a valid baptism, well, we think why? Because it is the intention of the priest who has been given the, 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 the gift of the priesthood in order to baptize people, and he is baptizing them in goodwill, and they are truly like people who want to be baptized, and so he's baptizing them in the water, and they're being baptized. So the Holy Spirit understands that, right? The Holy Spirit understands that this is supposed to be a baptism, even though he used one word slightly differently, okay? Unfortunately, when the Catholic Church discovered that this is what he was doing, they invalidated 25 years' worth of baptisms, and they had to contact every single person that had been baptized by this priest in the last 25 years to tell them that your baptism is invalid and you have to be baptized again. So what does this tell us? This approach and this thought process is saying what? That, that it, it is like the human being is, is like it's a magic. It's a certain words. When I say the magic words, that those words are what make the baptism valid. But even though the intent of the priest is valid and even though the work of the Holy Spirit is the same and even though the person wants to be baptized, but no, if you don't say the magic words, then that means the person is not validly baptized. And there's something very wrong with that approach, right? Because again, it's not magic. It's not an incantation. It is the Spirit of God who is a person, who is present in that, and he is choosing to impart the Holy Spirit on this person through the will of the person and the faith of the person and the will of the priest. Yes. Yes, but I know people that also say, like, we don't have to sing every hymn and every tone and every, like, there's a lot of things in our church that are very methodical and very intentional and on purpose that another person can say, well, this is kind of, like, this isn't the point, right? And we could do without these things and the essence and the meaning and the blessing of the liturgy or the service is still there. So where do we draw the line on that? So if a person, let's say in a liturgy, doesn't chant to him, does that mean that they're going to hell? Does that mean that the liturgy is invalid for them? You know, if a person um, chooses not to attend the liturgy of the waters and never partakes of the Le'en. Does that mean that it's useless or that there's somehow, um, again, like their salvation is at risk? No, I mean, we provide these things as spiritual tools to help a person be closer to God, right? 
Yes, there are some things that God has said, unless you partake of it, like unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life in you, right? So we have, there's no compromise about that, right? That's why the sacraments that are necessary for salvation, that's why we say that. That's why we say they are necessary for salvation. But chanting a specific hymn or reciting a certain prayer, that is not necessary for salvation. This is the means by which the church sets for us to create a spiritual atmosphere to help us to be focused in prayer, to help us, you know. And yeah, maybe some people feel like they don't prefer to say those things. I'm not saying, I, I, I think they are missing out because they haven't maybe invested the time to learn and appreciate why the church has set up many, many different things because there is depth, there's spiritual depth in them. But if someone insists in the end, okay, I don't want to chant the hymn or whatever, it's, 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 yes, maybe detrimental for their spiritual growth, but it's not necessarily that that person is cut off from God and cut off from the church as a result, which is very different than this situation with the baptism because by saying your baptism invalid means you're not even a Christian. Like you're not a, you are, you are taking communion invalidly for 25 years. You know, imagine you like contact someone who was baptized 25 years ago and you say to them, all of this time, you haven't really even been a Catholic. It's devastating, you know, for somebody to be told that and to say that you have to be baptized again. So uh, it's an extreme example, but it's one that really demonstrates, right, this principle. God is a person and God is a person who works and he has a mind and he has a will and he chooses to work. Right. And it is not because of one word here or there. Right. How many times do I make mistakes in words? Uh, I mean, if, if that invalidated things, everything would be invalid. <laughs> OK, we didn't read this verse yet. Right. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. So the two spies that they were sent, they met with Rahab, and, she, and they told her that she will remain safe, her and anyone who's in her house, and she will hang a scarlet cord uh, out of her window so that they would identify her so that no one inside of her house would be harmed. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed, when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So they were told that they are not to loot or plunder anything of the city, right? That all of this stuff is, is considered accursed and everything that is like uh, valuable metals like silver, gold, bronze, and iron, those would be taken and they would be used for the tabernacle and the service of God, okay? But no one is to take any of them for themselves. This is what Origen says about this. He says, the meaning of these words is to beware of keeping things of the world inside us, lest wicked habits would get into the congregation of believers. Do not mix, of the, uh, do not mix things of this world with those of Christ and keep the abominations of the world from entering into the sanctuaries of the church, okay? So, so do not, do not be like lust after and covet the items and the things of the of of these people and want them to take them for yourself. And this is a big temptation, because again, these are nomadic people. They have been wandering in the desert. 
They have not lived in any kind of permanent settlement, right? They have not had the benefit of, you know, a, a, a city like this, a permanent place where people had all kinds of possessions and things. So it would be very attractive for the people to see this and want to take it, okay? But God said to them, do not take it. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great, uh, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Okay, so this is the, you see here, this is this is the result, right, of 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 them going around the city, of them believing God, and it doesn't make any sense. You know, no amount of shouting or trumpets could ever make a wall to fall. And, you know, I've seen, like, documentaries where people try to ascribe to this some kind of scientific explanation. Said maybe there was an earthquake at the exact time that this happened. Sure, if God wanted to use an earthquake to do it, he can. But the point of it is, is whether God used uh, natural means or completely supernatural means in order to do this, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line in the end is that God caused this uh, wall to fall at this exact moment. Okay? And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Exactly what God told them to do. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. This is Rahab. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they brought into the treasury of the house of the Lord, exactly like God had said. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father, uh, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He lays its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. So this city became like a representation of evil, okay, and the devil. And God is showing his power over this evil, over the devil. And its destruction is a sign of what God is about to do to all of Canaan, right? So this first battle was completely supernatural. They met the commander of the army of the Lord. He's told Joshua that he is the one who's going to be fighting for them. They don't even, you know pick up a sword or do anything in order to bring the walls down, and then everything after that is easy for them to kill the rest of the people. Okay, So it is, it is a representation and a message that is being sent to all of the nations that are there who are going to hear about this, is that God is the one who is bringing victory to these people. It is not themselves. Okay, And that is going to be even more clear here in this next chapter. Any comments about chapter 6 before we move on to chapter 7? Okay. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, 
of the tribe of Judah took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Okay, so this man, Achan, took something from the items that God said do not take. And you see here, this is the human nature, okay? The human nature that responds to God's grace with disobedience, right? And we see this from the very first humans, from Adam and Eve, you know, Eve who sinned against God even after he created for her all of the paradise to enjoy, and yet she was tempted and disobeyed God. Here also, the Israelites who see all of the work of God, the power of God, the presence of God, no one could say, well, I doubt God's existence. No one could say, you know, yeah, God didn't actually do this. No, they knew very well it was God, and yet their heart lusted for something that was contrary to God, something that was in opposition to God. And so he took of these items, okay? Um, it is like our attachment to the world, right? Like we are attached to these destroyed things that are in the world, and we do not want to live without them. Even though we know that they are temporary, even though we know they are destructive and harmful, even though we know they take us away from God whom we love and who loves us, and yet we find ourselves attracted to the darkness of the world. We find ourselves attracted to, to the things that, um, you know, we feel like we cannot live without them, even though they lead us away from God. The same exact situation here that happened with this man, okay? After seeing all of the victory that they got, he took it for himself. Also, you can see that he very likely considered that what he was doing was insignificant, you know? What is just one person taking some very minor, small things? Why, why, why is that even a big deal? Certainly, there would be no consequence. Certainly, it would have nothing to do with the rest of the people. Because notice that it says what? The anger of the Lord burned against who? The children of Israel. Like everyone. Because of the sin of this man, the, ch the, 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 the anger of the Lord burned against the entire nation. Right? The entire nation. Which is something very um, interesting. Because when corruption begins to enter through one place, it then corrupts the whole. Right? We see this when, for instance, the children of Israel begin to intermingle with the Gentiles and to intermarry with them. And those Gentiles who were idol worshippers, what did happen? Idol worshipping began to enter and it spread through the whole people. And so now all of Israel became idol worshippers. Right? So God had no uh, tolerance for this. Right? This action by this one man, God wanted to make an example so that this corruption would not spread to the rest. St. Mark the Hermit, he says, The devil presents to us little sins that may seem to be of no importance before our eyes, as he otherwise would not be able to lead us to the greater sins. Meaning what? The devil doesn't come and present to you the worst possible sins all at once. You know, if he come and says, commit murder, well, maybe no, we don't want to do that. But he first tempts us with hatred. You know, he tempts us with lack of forgiveness. He tempts us with judgment. He tempts us with anger. He tempts us with other little things that then begin to build on top of one another and to grow. And all the while we are changing and our minds are changing and our attitudes are changing without us even being aware of the change to where we find ourselves suddenly 
in a place where maybe actually we would contemplate it, where maybe actually it would be an option that we would think about, where maybe we could even fall into the sin. So the devil does not tempt us all at once was the worst thing, but that is his goal. He is leading us on that road. That's the road he wants us to walk for sure. And he is never satisfied or content with any, you know, he's like, say, well, you know, you're, you're bad enough. I'm going to leave you alone. No, the, the worse you get, the worse he wants you to be. Because you are, it's a path, it's a road that leads to the worst possible sins that starts out with the small things. So again, um, God wanted to extinguish this immediately as fast as possible. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon. So I don't know if you can see here uh, on this map, but... Uh, so Jericho is here. This is where they are. And then I is over there. So not too far away, distance. That's the next place they're going. Because remember, they are going to conquer all of Canaan. So they're going city by city. Okay. So that's the next city that they're going to encounter. Um, on the east side of Bethel and spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out I. So exactly like they spied out Jericho and they saw the situation. And so now they're sending spies to Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So certainly, if they were able to conquer this whole city of Jericho, which was a fortified city, and God granted them success in it, and God told them he wants them to destroy all of the people, then destroying this small city is no big deal. Like, they are confident now, right? They are very confident. As compared to Jericho, this was simple for them, okay? And now they're going to employ more conventional types of warfare, right? Their God is not telling them to go around the city or anything like that. They're just going to go and attack the city, okay? Um, So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gates as far as Sherebim, and struck them down in the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Okay, so they went there with confidence, and they realized that they were defeated. And actually, 36 of the men were killed. And so they were afraid, right? They, they ran away, and they're confused, right? Um, why now did they not succeed? You know, in their minds, like, why, why, are we, why are we not succeeding now? What has changed, you know? And they began to doubt. But we know why, and, and this will be now revealed to all the people because of the work of Achan, who committed a sin, Okay, and you can see that this is our greatest problem. You know, the greatest problem is not the, uh, the, the battles. The greatest problem is not the fights. The greatest problem is the sin. Because if we fled from sin, and if we had no sin, and if our relationship to God was strong, then no matter what happens in our life, we would be able to endure it with joy. This is what really we are seeking in our life. You know, in our life, we deal with all kinds of anxieties and stress and fear of the future and pain and suffering. But 
if we felt the presence of God strongly, constantly, with us, all the time, then we would feel protected. Like, yeah, I don't know the future, but I'm, I'm comfortable. I feel like God is with me in it. You know, I can't change certain things about my life, but I believe God is allowing it for my salvation, and so I'm comfortable with it. I'm okay with it. I'm able to endure it, and, and maybe in some cases I even, you know, enjoy the suffering. Just like the apostles after they were beaten, it says about them that they enjoy that they are suffering for the name of Christ. So if our relationship to God is so strong, then nothing in the world can harm us or touch us or make us lose our peace or make us lose our joy. And this is ultimately what we want to have, right? When we talk about, oh, I have a problem, I want to fix it. Well, why do you want to fix the problem? Well, because I want joy, because I want to be happy, because I don't want to be stressed or anxious. But if you look at what everything the Lord Jesus Christ said, he didn't come and say, I'm going to cancel all your problems. He said, I will be with you in the problems. He says, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He said, you know, lay your burdens at my feet. He said, you know, take upon my yoke because my burden is easy, right? He, this is what he said. He said, engage with me and, and interact with me and have a relation with me and your life will be pleasant. Pleasant not in the external circumstances, but pleasant here inside. You will be at peace inside. And whatever happens on the outside won't matter to you so much. It won't be as critical to you. Because whatever direction the path God takes me, I know that it is God who's taking me. I know that he is the one allowing it. And so I'm comfortable, right? I am not fighting it. I'm comfortable in it. And so that is our biggest problem then. Our biggest problem is the sin that separates us from God. So when those anxieties and fears and problems come, we don't have him to lean on or to have that sense of awareness of he is with me all the time. And instead we feel alone and isolated and afraid and angry and confused. And this here is what they're experiencing. God had departed from them. He was not helping them in this battle. So they went up against this relatively small city that should have been a piece of cake for them. And even this small thing, they couldn't handle it, right? They were wounded by it. Even the smallest thing, they were wounded, right? Like the person who is strong in their relationship with God is able to stand up against so many things and endure with strength. But the person who has no connection to God, even the smallest thing wounds them, frightens them, makes them lose their peace, makes them fall. They are unable to cope with the world because they don't have the strength of God that is in them. So again, when we are strong in our relationship with God, it means that we are fighting against sin. We are seeking purity. We want to obey the commandments of God. And in that, our relationship strengthens and we are not, str we are not weak and helpless, but we are we are strong in Christ. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So they are angry and upset and confused and afraid and don't know what's happening. And so they are supplicating God, right? The tearing of the clothes is like representation of mourning and sorrow, okay? And they are putting dust on their heads, humbling themselves before God, saying, God, why are you allowing us to lose? I mean, you just said that we we're going to win, and you just said be of good courage, and you just did all of those things. Why are you allowing us to lose? 
And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? Like, why did you tell us to come here if you are not going to grant us victory? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back from its enemies? So he had a problem. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? We see here again Joshua, whose name is the same as Jesus. Joshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the Greek name, right? Um, that Joshua is an intercessor. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was an intercessor, a mediator for between us and God, so Joshua is a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ in this, and he is interceding for the people before God. He is going to God, he is praying, he is asking for God to have mercy on them and to explain to them what is it that's happening. Okay. So here are the problems they have and in Joshua's mind. Number one, is God still with us? And if God is still with us, why did we lose? Because that was not unexpected. They almost had kind of a sense of invincibility now, right? Nothing can touch us. Um, two, the people are now going to lose heart and want to turn back. Because before, the people were confident in their victory and what God was doing. But now, if we're afraid that we could lose at any time, right? We don't want to, to go forward. We don't want to go on this fight. We want to run away. Three, their enemies are now going to be emboldened that they can be defeated. Maybe God is not with them after all, or maybe God is not as strong as we thought. And four, they're afraid of the future, right? What is, is going to happen if we keep going and are we going to have additional losses? So this was a devastating loss for them. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have stolen and deceived, and they have also put it up among their own stuff. So he's ex exposing now what is it that happened with Achan. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. This is a very frightening thing to hear when God says, I will, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. So this accursed thing, that its presence with them, is a simple item. It's a few simple items. Like nobody tried to harm anybody. No one killed anyone. Right? This is they just took a few simple items and kept it with them. Right? Sometimes in the minds of people, the only kinds of sins that exist in their mind is sins that cause some kind of physical harm or physical damage. And so when we talk about there being sin, right, people will say, But I didn't hurt anyone. Right? Well, this has nothing to do with hurting a human being. But you are, you are hurting God. You are transgressing the commandment of God. And you are causing him not to be able to approach you and to be with you as he wants. So, so this accursed thing is what is preventing God from being with you. It is not that God doesn't want to be with you. It's that God is not able to approach sin. The sin is preventing him. Because the sin is a transgression against him. 
okay? And without the presence of God in, in their, with their people, and without the presence of God with us, then we can have no success. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Keep in mind, all of those people that suffered, all those people who died, those 36 people, they had done nothing wrong. They did not in any way sin. But it was the sin of Achan, who might not even have been one of those people who went in the battle. It was because of him that all this happened to the people. Again, my sins and my decisions has an effect on the people around me, have, have an effect on my family, have an effect on my church, have an effect on, if I'm a servant, the people that I serve and the people I interact with. Everything that we do has an effect, okay, on, on the people around us. So, so we purge and sanctify ourselves, okay, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the whole body of Christ. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that, th that he who is taken with the accursed thing who shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Okay, so... Uh, Essentially, God is going to reveal by calling uh, groups of people, a tribe, uh, uh, a family, and individuals until the person is found or revealed. God obviously knows already who he is. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zerhites. And he brought the family of the Zerhites man by man, and Zebdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. L look how the people were diligent in trying to root out the sin in among them. It says what? That he brought all of Israel. You know? It's like over a million people. He brought them. Someone has committed a sin. And we have to figure out who it is among these million people who is the one who sinned against God and why is it God is not among us anymore. And they spent all of this effort trying to find this, trying to root it out, you know. Again, sometimes we, we sin and we take it so casually. Like, what is it that I have done to stop myself? What is it that I have, stopped, uh, what is it that I have done to help me so that I don't commit the sin again? What is it that I have done, right? Instead, we take it casually, like we just go about our day. We don't really take it very seriously, right? But look how serious it is because they said, what? If we do not do this, then God is not going to be with us, and he has to stay with us. We need it. Our survival depends on him being with us. So we can't just pretend like it's okay. We can't just say, oh, well, you know, that's his personal choice. You know, everybody, everybody lives as they choose, you know? No, this was something that affects everyone. You know, even in our society, we have this approach. It's like, yeah, you can do whatever junk you do, but just, you know, do it on your own. But yeah, but everybody doing it on their own has an impact on everybody else. You know, like when our kids go to school, for instance, they see the other kids that are doing the, the weird, crazy things, right? 
And even though, yes, they have freedom, okay? You, you have freedom to, to be how you are. But that's affecting everyone else. You know, our concept of freedom <coughs> in this country is completely like, you know, is, is, is morally uh, agnostic. There's no sense of right and wrong anymore. Just do whatever you want to do. You want to put all kinds of piercings and tattoos on your face and all kinds of stuff and dye your hair and, and do whatever, like a million things, don't even look like a human being. Yeah, you're free to do that. And you can go to school like that. And people can see you like that. Okay? So is it going to have a bad effect? Yes, it's going to have a bad effect on the people around you. Right? Even things that, that we would not say are directly like harming anyone, they are, they, are, they are indirectly affecting people. So God here is revealing who is responsible. Okay? And it reminds us of what the Lord Christ said um, to the Pharisees. He said, Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear and the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Meaning, you cannot keep a secret before God, right? And whatever it is that you do that you think is hidden, it will be made known. And in this case, because God had said that this is something that's going to affect the whole people, that if you sin, you are affecting, you are willfully, knowledgeably affecting the entire nation. Right? This is why the, the consequence of the sin was going to be so harsh on him. Right? Because this wasn't just like a moment of personal weakness. No, he had just seen all that happened. And now he committed this sin, this very selfish sin, against him and against the nation. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and looked and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So this is what he stole. A garment, uh, silver and gold. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from, his, from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. So we can ask the question, why was God so severe in his punishment? And why is it that God did not forgive him? Okay. There's many reasons. The first, this was um, the first transgression that happened after entering Canaan. So God wanted it to be clear that sin cannot be tolerated. Again, we know for a fact that eventually what's going to happen is that the people are going to fall into sin and they're going to be cut off from God and they're going to be destroyed and exiled. Like we know eventually that's what's going to happen. So we know that 
these kinds of things are very dangerous and cannot be tolerated, right? So he had to be clear that sin is not tolerated. This is the same thing actually that happened to a man um, earlier um, that when after God had established the Sabbath rules and one of the commands of not working on the Sabbath, so there was a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath and the, the, the judgment on him was stoning, death by stoning, for gathering sticks. Because again, it was the first uh, transgression and God wanted it to be very clear that this is uh, that this is not tolerated. The Sabbath is holy, and you cannot do th this work on the Sabbath. Okay. Another example of this is Ananias and Sapphira, the two people who claimed that they sold all they had and they gave the money to the church, when in actuality they kept the money for themselves or some of the money for themselves. Again, why did God uh, respond so harshly when He had them drop dead on the spot? Were they the first people ever to lie? You know, there's people that lie, there's people that work on the Sabbath, there's people that steal, there's people that do all kinds of things, and they don't get this kind of punishment, right? God, again, wanted it to be very clear that sin is not tolerated and to set the example from the beginning. Second reason why is that Achan had just seen the power of God in the crossing of the Jordan and the tearing down of the walls of Jericho. So he had no excuse. Like, they, they had just witnessed all of those things, right? And so he, having seen those things, should have, was expected to have more faith than what he had, to, to have more obedience than what he had. The third reason that God treated him this way is that he did not repent and confess from the beginning, but only when he was found out. When <coughs> he heard that uh, Joshua was going to call out the people, uh, when God was going to expose the sinner, when he saw that the people um, had, uh, had lost the battle, when God told Joshua that um, it's because someone sinned, when, when the people put dust on their head, at any point in time before this, this man could have said, this is because of my sin, and so I'm going to go and confess and acknowledge this before Joshua. Maybe his outcome would be different. We don't know. But because he didn't, he waited up until the moment that he was found out, and only when he was found out did he then say that he confessed, right? So it was a confession by, by force. You know, he was compelled to confess, <coughs> not because um, he did it really willing, willingly. So that's the end of chapter 7. And so next time we will see again how the people are going to continue um, in, their, uh, in, in their march across Canaan. Um, after this situation. Um, does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, and we ask, O Lord, that you teach us always the lessons that you want us to learn from reading the Scriptures and the Old Testament. Help us, O Lord, to see you in it and to see your mercy and your grace and to see, O Lord, your desire for purity and that you remain close to us and that we would be strengthened, O Lord, in you and not by anything else in this world. 
Help us to be sanctified, O Lord, and to cut out from our life all kinds of bad habits and sinful practices that lead us away from you. Strengthen us and purify our minds, and teach us, O Lord, to walk in innocence and obedience. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one in Christ Jesus our Lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of God the Father the grace of the only begotten Son our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ the communion the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the Lord be with you all amen and also with your spirit there is some Latin water here from uh, the Latin on Tuesday so if anyone has not gotten any and you want to take a bottle please do so